All right, this morning I, I was kind of, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 if you want to jump there. Uh, for those of you that's your first time here, my name is Michael Page. I'm the, the lead pastor at Connection Church Savannah. And as I was driving to church this morning, God always does this, and it's like, I get frustrated. I'm like, God, like, come on, man. Like, I need some preparation time. You know what I mean? But he kind of just throws these things on me sometimes. But Matthew 16 really came to my heart. You don't have to turn there. I just want to share something with you. And as we were singing, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. You have no rival. You have no equal. Like, those words that we sing a lot, we sing songs and worship God and all these things. And he, wrote, he, point, he was pointing me this morning to Matthew 16 as I was coming in. He, it's at the confession of Peter. And so it says this in uh, Matthew 16. You can write this down in your notes if you want to go check it out later. It won't even be on the screen. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Guys, there's a lot of people in the world right now that say a bunch of different things about who Jesus is right now, right? There's a bunch of people that will say he was a good teacher, he was a heretic, he was a crazy man. Um, and he, So Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, but you. Verse 15, but you. Like John, Jesus stops them. Okay, but you. Let's, let's bring it down into focus. You. You individually. Who do you say that I am? It's one of the most important questions we could ask ourselves in the world, right? Who do you say Jesus is this morning? What it says in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, son, Simon, son of Jonah, because the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say that to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of the gospel, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but what I do know is the church sometimes has made God way too small. Can we just kind of agree on those things? Like, we come in and we, 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 we kind of pride ourselves in our abilities to sing or to teach or to, to attend a service. And sometimes I think our, our, in our attempts to worship God, we miss him because he's so much bigger than we can imagine, so much more glorious than we sing about, so much more magnificent than we read about. And Jesus is sitting here, God in the flesh, to Peter, who do you say that I am? And this morning, I just want to ask you as we jump into Luke 10, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And I want to go a little bit further than that because we live in the Bible Belt and everybody in this room would say, Jesus is the Son of God. Who do you, what does your life say about who Jesus is? What does your life say about who Jesus is? Because you can talk it all you want, but when it comes down to living it is another thing. Because these disciples that Jesus was asking this question to went on and their lives changed forever. They all died proclaiming the glory of Jesus. So my heart today is not, not only what does your mouth say about who Jesus is, but what does your life say about who Jesus is this morning? So as we jump into Luke 10, let's let that be our goal as we, as we think through Luke 10 this morning about what we're going to talk about a disciple is this morning. So y'all ready to go for this? So we're in week four, uh, week four of the series Authentic. Um, so what does it mean? The question has been, what does it mean to be authentic disciples of Jesus and why this series? Um, we've been praying and thinking through what God's been trying to lead us to and what, we think, what we've seen is we feel like the Lord is leading us towards this topic of authentic discipleship. And I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't really know this sermon series was going to do the things that it's done in people's lives. I really thought this was going to be a filler series and move on to the next one. But God has been messing some people up with this series, right? I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, and there's been a lot of things happening in people's hearts. I've had conversations with people here and here about things that I just like, ah. And so my heart would be that we would allow God to do that work in us. 
And we would allow God to refine us and convict us and change us so that we can be authentic disciples, humble and, and pleasing to our Lord. Because what I know, I want to see the things I read in the Bible come about in real life, right? In, in life that I see about. And that's only going to happen if I surrender to him the way that he's calling me to surrender to him. I don't know what's going on. Just ignore it. See, it goes away. It's kind of like, you know, don't give Satan a foothold. Okay, here we go. So, we're, listen, but we're called, if we're going to see the church grow to maturity and to unity for the mission, we cannot normalize spiritual laziness and remain effective. We cannot normalize spiritual laziness and overlook it in our brothers and sisters and remain effective. We're called to, to call by God to live in urgency on mission. We're called to be on mission urgently. And so what does it mean to be authentic? We talked about this last week. And it's more importantly, the question is, what does it look like to be authentic when it's normal in your culture to be inauthentic? Like, it's when it's normal to be uh, fake, when it's normal to have a Facebook profile picture that looks nothing like you, right? It's normal, right? When it's, when it's, norm, when it's normal to put things on, out there on social media, whenever, a perfect picture of how your life is in reality, your life is a dumpster fire maybe. I don't know. What does it look like? Whatever, what does it look like to be authentic, is authentically following Jesus in a culture that's used to being inauthentic. And at Connection, we exist to, to connect people, to connect you to a growing relationship with Jesus. What that means is we exist to make disciple-making disciples. Our goal is to, in everything that we do, is to see disciples made. But a disciple is not what we do. It's who we are in Christ. And that's what we see in Peter's life in Matthew 16 that we just shared. But what we, but what we do, it always flows out of who we are. And so hear that this morning. So a disciple, a disciple we said this before. This is the definition. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus, someone who is being transformed by Jesus, and someone who is joining Jesus on his mission. Does everybody agree with that? Like that's someone who follows Jesus, someone who is being transformed by Jesus, and someone who has joined Jesus on his mission. There's a lot of us in this room that would claim the first phrase, I follow Jesus. But when it comes to dissecting our lives, maybe we haven't necessarily been transformed by Jesus because we haven't allowed Jesus in the parts of our hearts to transform those parts. Well, maybe we haven't joined him on his mission because we haven't truly surrendered our families, our time, our treasures, our talents to him to use on his mission, right? Guys, it's about identity. And what we've done as a church, this is what this whole series is about. We believe this new identity in Christ plays itself out in five marks, the five descriptions of a healthy disciple. In the New, Te in the New Testament, what we see is a, a disciple, we talked about this, is a worshiper of God. Last week, we talked about a, a disciple as a part of the family of God. And today, we're going to talk about a disciple as a servant. A disciple is a servant. So last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, kind of a review, and it showed us that if you say, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then we're called to be members of a local church, a local body, not just attenders, but a member of a local body where you can grow, be held accountable, use the gifts that God's given you um, to, to see that God's mission carried out on earth, not just come warm a seat on a Sunday or go to connect group during the week. Those are check marks on a box. We said a Christian outside of fellowship in the local church doesn't make biblical sense. That's, as you look at the Bible, that's what we see. So the Great Commission, as you know, the Great Commission is a costly command. It's not something that we put on a bulletin board and, and, and romanticize over. It's costly. It will cost everything in your life. And every Christian is called to go, be baptized, and disciple all nations. And so what you see is being a member of a local body keeps us focused on that mission and that it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and his name being praised among all nations. 
And that's why we need each other in so many ways. Because you sharpen me, I sharpen you, and we work together to see the kingdom come. Because we said if you're an heir to the promise, if you're a Christian, you're also an heir to the purpose. That means you're going to be going where he says go and doing what he says do. So today, the identity of a servant is what we're going to be looking at. The identity of a servant. Every Christian in this room, in this world, is called to live the way that Jesus lived. Would everybody agree in that way? Everybody, everybody says, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. The word Christian in Acts 11.26 meant little Christs. Is what they, it, was a, it was a derogatory statement in that moment. Little Christs. Are you living a life as a little Christ, like someone who is following Jesus step by step, day by day? Even though Jesus was the actual Son of God, the God in flesh, he didn't come to earth to be served. He came to earth to serve. He came to earth to serve others, putting the needs of others before his own. And hear this this morning. Being a disciple is about, is, is about giving your life to someone who gave his away for you. Does that make sense? That's the heart today as we jump into this. So let me pray for us as we jump in, and let's just focus our hearts on what God is going to do in our hearts. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just break away the chains of our hearts. God, the, the hardness of our hearts. God, soften our hearts. God, if the people in this room that are saved, that are, that, are, that are bought by the blood of Jesus, Father, I pray that you would draw us in for the person who is not, for, for the person who is deceived or the person who is far away from you, God, who is living in unforgiveness or whatever it may be. God, I pray that you would just soften their heart this morning and draw them into your presence. God, I pray that you would save someone today. God, bring them to a saving knowledge of your gospel, Father, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so this morning, I just want to kind of set the stage really quick, all right? So if you've ever traveled out of the country, we have anybody that's ever traveled outside of the United States of America, right? A few of us. So you know if you've ever gone to a certain country or a certain type of country, um, you go, you get in the airport, you come out in the airport, and you, you, uh, there's these groups of people standing outside, whether it's on a motorcycle or this car or this van, and they come up to you trying to get your bags. Anybody ever? Anybody? Let me, I'll help you. Let me help you. Let me help you. Let me help you. And I, the first time I ever did that, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Grab my stuff. You know, and I didn't realize that they were going to take it. And so, um, so sometimes when I say help, I mean, they're forcefully getting in your business saying, hey, let me take your bag. Let me take your bag. Let me take your bag. And then immediately once they put it in the car that's going to take you somewhere, they, hand, they, ha- they hold their hand out wanting money, right? Yeah. Okay. I did that. My money. Give me, give me my tip. Give me, my, give me what I just earned. They saw an opportunity in my ignorance to earn some cash, right? And as I was thinking about what it means to be a servant this week, specifically as a disciple of Jesus, I was reminded that this is how we all have approached being a servant in our culture. And this has even been leaked into the church some. I'm serving to get something. I'm serving for a position. I'm serving for a reputation. I'm serving so God would approve of me. I'm serving so I'll be saved, which all those things are wrong. Don't, don't write to me later saying that I preach false gospel. That was just, that was a joke. Okay, so in a culture that is largely self-serving, it's easy to approach serving as a means to something else, right? We live in a culture that's very self-serving, and we're, we serve to be seen, to earn position, to earn a reputation. We serve out of guilt or an obligation to try to win God's approval. When the, winning God's approval means I just trust the Lord in the gospel, right? But in reality, sir, this isn't serving at all. Those guys at the airport aren't serving me at all. Me coming to God trying to win my salvation by serving is not serving at all. Me serving you trying to win God's approval by serving you is not serving you at all. It's serving me. Because what happens, we end up serving ourselves if we serve with an end in mind. 
And we'll see that in the passage we're going to be looking at today in Luke chapter 10, we're going to see this because it's impossible to be a faithful servant. It's impossible to be a faithful servant while having an expectation to be served at the same time. Please hear that this morning. It is impossible for you to be a faithful servant of Jesus while having an expectation to be served at the same time. Can we gather around that point? That's the main topic this morning that I want you to see. And so what is a servant? I like to define things a lot. I like to define things as we go along. So kind of our definition as a church of what a servant is, is someone who voluntarily makes painful sacrifices in compliance with the weaknesses or needs of others. You're like, that's very complicated. It is complicated, but it's awesome, right? Someone who voluntarily makes painful sacrifices in compliance with the weaknesses or needs of others. Someone who makes sacrifices in their lives to help other people. Right? That's the, that's, the, that's the short end of it right there. So let's look for an example. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Turn there really fast. Philippians chapter 2. I want to kind of just sweep through this really fast. That's why I want to show you the example of what Jesus did for us, or he set the example for us. We're going to look at verse 3 through 11. I'm just going to blow through this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. Paul's talking to the Philippians. He's, he's showing them how to live with Christian humility, um, how to live your life in a way that pleases and honors God and brings glory to his name. He starts off in verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish amb- ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. That's a very un-American standard, right? Consider other people be- better than yourself. Consider other people more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Remember, we're t- he's talking to the church here, okay? He's not talking to the person on the side of the road. He's talking to the church body, the people who are saying, hey, I believe in Christ. I've sur- I submitted myself to the church. Surrender yourself to the church. This is what he's saying. Everyone should look out for not only his own needs, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5. This is huge. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. How how we doing with that? Everybody good? That's everybody's okay. Adopt the same attitude. This is Jesus, God in the flesh. Adopt the same attitude as the as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. The actual translation is doulos, which is slave. He assumed the form of a slave. He emptied himself, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this beautiful picture of Jesus giving us an example. And so that's what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is going to give us an example of what it means to be a servant. And what I love about our Lord is he never gives you something to do without showing you why you're doing it and showing you, giving you an example of how to do it through Scripture. And I love that. As we look at this today, let's have faith that he's calling us to end this relationship with him, to surrender to him, to, to follow his example, but he's going to empower us through the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he's calling us to do. And let's, do, let's look at this today. So he was God in flesh. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He was cursed because he was dying on a tree, is what the Old Testament would have said. And all of this was to do, in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. 
And so as we look at that today, remember what we're talking about. Remember what we're looking at as we look at Luke chapter 10. So let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. We're just going to dissect some of this scripture, and I want to give you two points to go off of as we go, okay? So we're going to be talking about the Good Samaritan. Everybody's heard the Good Samaritan story. Everybody's looked at the flannel graphs in your VBS classes with all the things. Nobody knows what a flannel graph is. Okay, great. All you good Baptists probably will. Um, they're, they're still using them in some places, just letting you know now. It's 2022, people. Okay, verse 25. Then an expert of the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? As I was reading this, I wanted to stop here because there's a couple of things we need to notice here first. This law expert, this lawyer, asked the most important and basic question of all. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Right? Second, he, he's not even asking it sincerely. He's saying, he's testing Jesus in this, right? So he's asking this basic question, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm going to heaven, right? We've all asked that question in some form. If you haven't asked that question, I pray this morning that you will start wrestling with that. Am I going to heaven or not? Do I know Jesus or not, right? The question is, how do I know that I'm going to heaven? So he's testing Jesus in this. Verse 20, um, let's, read, let's read that again through 28. It says, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom, excuse me, eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? I love that question, by the way. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. And so I, when I was, I was reading that this week, I have a lot of embarrassing moments in my office because most of the time I'm here alone and I'm reading and I like laugh out loud or I'm like praying out. And so if you ever come in here and you, you don't announce yourself, you might hear some funny things. So this is a big do right here, right? God, Jesus just gave this joker a big do, like you, a big list of things to do. So Jesus just asked him, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, mind, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God supremely. To get to heaven. Love God just, just like he told the rich young ruler, what must I do to get to, go to heaven? I've kept all the commandments. Okay, I've kept all the commandments, and now go steal everything you have and follow me. He goes to the heart of every person's idol, right? He's going to the heart of this man's idol too, of the law. The law was his idol. You look at this. He's going to the heart of his, of, of his idol. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love him supremely. Nothing can get in the way of Jesus. Nothing can get in the Love him above your food, above your family, above your job, above all the things in your life. He said, you've answered correctly. Make God the highest passion in your heart. The one you think about first in the morning and last before you go to bed. The one you think about the most during the day. You should care more about pleasing him than anybody else in your life. When your mind is idle, it goes straight to Jesus. And on top of that, love everybody else as much as you love yourself. Anybody doing good with that? Right. Care about the needs of other people as much as you do your own. Who in here wants to raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me? Right? <laughs> right? We all are fall short on this. And just like us, this lawyer falls short on this. And I love this because he's, Jesus is showing him something that he can't do. And so the kind of the quandary of this commandment is that love is the kind of thing that you either do or you don't do. It's not something that I can command you to do. I can't say, hey, Jonathan, love your wife. I can't do that because it's, you either do or you don't, right? I can't say, do this. I can't say, feel this way or act this way. 
Because if you already love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it. Right? You don't have to tell me, you don't have to command me to kiss my wife or to eat a 30-count nugget tray at, at Chick-fil-A. You don't have to command me to play with my kids in the yard because I love it. I would do that more than I would hang out with most of y'all because I love those things. I love my kids. I love my wife. I love Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And if you don't love something, no command will change that. Listen, I hate raspberries. I hate them. They're confused fruit. I don't care what you say. <laughs> raspberries are weird. I don't like them. If you gave me a raspberry, you might coerce me to eat it somehow, but no command of yours is going to make me love it. It's not going to happen. And so as I'm thinking about this, no command, this is what we're looking at. You cannot be commanded to love something. And so look at verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, if you have a pen and you write in your Bible, underline that. He was trying to justify himself. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to test him here. This guy's feeling the heat of this commandment, so he's trying to limit its scope so he can meet the standard. You see that? We try to do this all the time. Well, what does it mean that the Bible says in Hebrews that if I, if I fall away, I can't come back? What does that mean? Well, let me, it really means this. I try to justify these things so that it fits my life so that I can, be, look, I can look good and feel good and feel safe and secure. Right? He's trying to limit this scope. What he's doing is he's missing the entire point of what Jesus is trying. Jesus loves this guy. And Jesus is trying to show him in, in this moment that he can't do this apart from him. And keep in mind, this man's primary concern, where is it at? It's still on himself. His main concern is himself, which presents a whole other problem. And listen to this. If you hear this, please, this morning, please, if nothing else, listen to this. Open your ears. If you think you have to earn your way to heaven, then in every good thing that you do, you are actually always operating from a place of self-interest. You hear that this morning? If you're thinking, and this is the great deceitfulness of religion, this is what the enemy has done in so many people's hearts, maybe in this room now. The enemy has, has got you bound up in religion at this point where all the good things that you're doing, you're still trying to please God instead of, instead of those things being an overflow of what God's done in your life, right? If you think you have to earn your way to heaven, then everything you do and you're not in life to serve, you're actually always operating from a place of self-interest. I'm loving you so that I can love myself. I'm loving you so that I can love myself by getting into heaven, bringing glory to God, so God will approve of me. But that's not what the Bible says. Is it Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, what does it say? It says, for you were saved, what? By grace, through faith. It's not of yourselves. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Guys, there's not even anything apart from Christ that you can do to please God. Our heart today is that you would see, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Guys, I'm saved for works, not by works. You hear that? I'm saved. You're, if you're saved in this room, you're saved for good works for the, that Jesus prepared in advance for you to do. You're not saved by those works, but the enemy wants to twist that on his head and create a false gospel that you try to follow. Some of you maybe have fallen short of that today, and you need to come up and repent and get that thing right. There's no condemnation because I've fallen into that pit a lot. Charles Spurgeon, I heard this quote in a sermon one time. I wanted to share it with y'all. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this through a, a story of a wise king. There was a gardener one time, and he presented this king with this, this huge carrot. He had, he had planted this, this row of carrots, and he came come up with this huge and a lot of the steroids and all that thing. So big carrot. 
The king, he was, he was touched, he was, he was blown away, he responded by giving the gardener a large plot of land. And so as he did that, a nobleman who witnessed this event, he decided it would be advantageous for him to present the king with his finest horse. And so he presented the king with his finest horse. And so he, as he does, the, the king merely thanked the guy for the horse. And the guy was like, well, wait a minute, what's happening here? He was confused. So the king explained to him that gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see that? You're, you were giving yourself the horse. You were, you were giving yourself the gift because you were doing that to get something else. Do you see the issue? This is the problem with all religion. The whole point of the gospel is we could not earn our way to heaven, so Jesus had to come and earn heaven for us. The message of the gospel is not try harder. The message of the gospel is to draw nearer. Do you hear that? The message of the gospel is not to try harder, it's to draw nearer to the Lord. This morning, please hear that. I pray we will be a church that's set free this morning by this type of thinking. We're not thinking about religion anymore. I'm not trying to do more. I'm trying to be more for my Lord. So these are all the things that play out in this question. And watch this. I love how Jesus, I love how Jesus responds to the, elite, the religious elite of this time. Jesus is going to tell a story that shifts the entire question. In the process, he's going to show us what it means to serve our neighbor and how we can develop the ability to do it. So let's look at verse 30 and 31. So this is what he said. This is how Jesus answers his question. Like it's, he doesn't even, he just, let me tell you a story. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers, and they stripped him, beat him, and, he, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so just kind of giving you some context, this priest was literally the priest was the, the go-between between God and man in that time, right? If you looked at someone and thought they were going to heaven, you would look at a priest and say, that man's going to heaven. I'm probably not, right? Jesus is hitting him right in the teeth. So when it says down from Jerusalem to Jericho, I'm going to give you some context. This road it was a 17-mile stretch of road that drops 3,000 feet in elevation, right? So going one way, good times. Going the other way, I'm probably going to stop for a break, right? Hard, hard road. And it was, a, it was an ideal for place, a place for robbers to hide. There was outcroppings of rocks, different things that robbers could hide. And we tend to, to kind of be hard on this priest, too. Like, we, we tend, we have this vision of him stepping over this bleeding man on his way to Chick-fil-A or something, right? I'm going to just kind of go over here. He's kind of, I'm going to not, I just ain't got time to deal with that, you know? And so, but Jesus' audience, as you're reading this, they would have known what was going on. They would have seen some pictures from, as they were, as they were reading the law of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those things. They knew, they remembered what Jesus had instituted in the law, Right? First, this road was very dangerous. It was, it was the pass of blood. Like the, the, the Jews would have known, like, this is a bad place. They, the, the road's name was literally nicknamed the pass of blood because people got beat up all the time on this road, right? If you traveled there, you didn't stop, right? You kept going. You, you just you move on. And the second thing I want to show you is this priest was returning from Jerusalem. Jesus is giving you some details, and this is why it's important that you study the Bible. He was returning from Jerusalem where he had purified himself so that he can return and perform his religious duties that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. And so according to the religious law, the Jewish law, if you touched a corpse or if you touched a bleeding man, or you had to be purified, which means you had to go back to the temple at 13 miles, purify yourself for another seven days. So this guy's thinking seven, eight days, I'm, I'm just, it's just not worth it. <laughs> Good luck. I'm praying for you, right? 
The point is, it would have been massively inconvenient for this priest, dangerous for this priest, and very expensive to help this guy. Three things that we use as excuses a lot of times in our heads. This is very inconvenient. This might be dangerous. I'm not going to Thailand. I'm not going to the bush in Africa. I'm not going to Southeast Asia to share the gospel because they may kill me. Right? That's too, it's just not worth it. This is a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money. I'm not going to. No, I just can't do it. We use those excuses, don't we? Same thing. Verse 32, what does it say? In the same way, a Levite, a Levite is like a JV priest. He's like kind of come up and coming. When he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So as I read that, I'm like, you know, here's the deal. You, you, you can see for miles on this road because it's straight. And so this Levite would possibly could have seen. I'm not saying this is biblical because it's not in there. But in theory, in theory this, this Levite could have seen this priest step around this guy. And so the Levite was like, all right, what I'm supposed to be doing what he's doing. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow the leader, right? But that's not right. Let's look at verse 33. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring, in, pouring on olive oil and wine. And, and then he put on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. I read too far, but it's okay. Verse 33, what you see there is if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Samaritans were the arch enemies of the Jews, right? And so what you see is the Jews, they labeled Samaritans as unclean because they were half-breeds, half half-bloods. What you saw is um, back in the day, they were offspring of the Assyrians who had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel back in 721 B.C. and forced the Jews to intermarry with them. You can read about this in 2 Kings 17. What we see is the Samaritans, they even built a separate altar and called their altar the true one. They even had, they even had moments where they were, they, were, they were thumbing their nose at Israel. You know? So there was this racial division that became violent. They were fighting each other. The Jews thought that the Samaritans... The only good Samaritan was a dead one, right? The Jews would used to pray, thank God I'm not a Samaritan, a woman. You know, there was all these things. They hated the Samaritans. And so there's this thing you had to see, though, is that don't get it wrong, the Samaritans were, weren't that nice either, right? Um, they would frequently rob Jews on their way to Jerusalem. They would, and let me tell you this, this is not something that I can confirm. I've just read it two places in two commentaries, um, so don't take this as law. But um, I thought it was funny, and I laughed out loud when I read this, but um, there's, they were known to desecrate the temple of the Jews at Passover. So before Passover, it says they would launch pigs into the court of the temple at, by catapult. I was like, let me read this again. So I said, let me verify this. So I found it in another place, but I only found it in two places, okay? So, um, so go check it out yourself. But it said they would launch pigs, which was the worst animal in the world, over the wall, into the temple courts, splattering pig blood everywhere, desecrating the temple so they couldn't celebrate Passover. Like, that's brute. That's, that's, that's gangster stuff right there. That's, that's hardcore. Sometimes they would, they would bring in human bones and hide them in the temple so they couldn't have, they would, they would desecrate the temple over and over. And so this guy, this person, the, the Samaritan, the Samaritan, he went over to him and bandaged. He, he saw the man. Was, this was a Jew. He had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra that you spend. He uses his own money for his enemy and even leaves an open line of credit for his enemy. Do you see that? It's incredible. Let's look at verse 36 and 37. 
So Jesus comes back around full circle to the, to, the, to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. He couldn't even use the word Samaritan. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. It was just the, the one, um, <coughs> one that, uh, that, that showed him mercy. Super prideful still. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. And so in this story, Jesus shows us what it means to serve and love people like Jesus. To serve and love people like Jesus serves and love people. And then he shows you why to do it, why we do it, and which part. It, no one, and this is the part no one ever gets. And for the next few minutes, as we, you know, as we kind of wind down here, I want to give you two points, two important points from this passage to give you a few practical insights on how a disciple is called to serve. Right On Sunday mornings, we have times for you to serve in kids. We have times for you to serve at the front door, serve on worship teams, serve outreach teams, all these types of things. Guys, those are not the epitome of serving. Those are the foundations, the beginning points of serving. Those are the beginning points of a Christian to serve because we believe if you will serve here, you'll serve out there. We're trying to give you rhythms in your life to begin being a servant. This is not the end-all, be-all. This is the beginning. So hear that first. So the first thing as I look at this, as I'm reading this, the first point is being a faithful servant will cost you something. Being a faithful servant will cost you something. Do you, do you agree with that? Like that's, it will cost you something to be a faithful servant. John Piper said that authentic discipleship may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price physically. Authentic discipleship may exact from you the highest price relationally and the highest price Physically, guys, we talked about this in week one of this series. We talked about the cost of discipleship from Luke 14. Jesus told his disciples, what did he say? Any one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Which we laid the foundation strong, right? And the question that nobody wants to ask when it comes to this phrase, when it comes to this verse, is how do we count the cost when we don't know what the cost is going to be for us? How do we count that cost when we don't actually know what it's going to be. The answer is that you assume the cost could be total. Okay? The answer to that question is you assume that it's going to cost you everything. And if you're not willing to follow, you cannot be his disciple in that. A lot of people will serve as long as it doesn't cost them anything, right? A lot of people will serve as long as it doesn't get in the way of their plans or agendas. Can we step on toes here? I hope we are because I did for me. Like, a lot of times, even in the church, we don't serve because it gets in the way of what we want or what we want to fit our comfort. It gets in the way of our reputation. It gets in the way of what we want in life, our agendas, our jobs, our money. It becomes inconvenient. We'll always serve when it's easy. Ask anybody that works in this church. We can tell you. We'll give you a spreadsheet of how it looks. It's, people will always serve when it's convenient. When there's no holiday, when there's no vacation, whenever there's nothing, no money to be earned, whenever there's no games to be played, we'll always serve in those moments. And like this lawyer tried to do, a lot of people will try to change the terms of biblical servitude to make it easier. Well, does it really, does we really supposed to go to church every week? We're really supposed to serve every week? Is this biblical how we're doing this? Like, let's change the rules a little bit, right? Who's Michael anyway? Who's these people that are trying to get me to serve anyway? Like, ah, they're not Jesus. I, I, can, I can watch from home. Um, so my thing is, listen, my thing is this, guys, is like, like this lawyer tried to do, a lot of people will try to change the terms of biblical servitude to make it easier on me and on you. 
And that's not what the Bible shows. That goes against our definition of being a servant. And it flies in the face of the heart of Christ that we see in Philippians chapter 2. There's no negotiating here with Jesus. Guys, we don't get the right to look at Luke 14 and say, yeah, you know, does he really mean this? Let's look at the Greek. We can make sure this really says what it says, right? We don't get to do that. There's no saying, well, if if the cost reaches this, then I'm not interested in following Jesus anymore. I'll follow Jesus 75% of the way. No, the Bible says if you're going to follow Jesus 75% of the way, you're not going to follow Jesus at all. This is not how disciples talk, guys. This is how hypocrites talk. And as you're looking at this, the type of serving that Jesus talks about in the Bible, this Luke 10 scenario here, the type of serving that we see here could cost you a few things. The first thing we see is it could cost you your comfort. Who doesn't like to be comfortable? We all like to be comfortable. I like to be comfortable. That's why we have an air-conditioning auditorium. I love AC. I hope that guy's in heaven. I might kiss him on the lips. You know what I mean? Thank you for AC, bro. Gifted. Listen, it could cause us our comfort. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Tell me right now that this Samaritan was living in his comfort zone, kneeling next to this man in a dangerous place, tending to his wounds. He wasn't. He was outside of his comfort zone. You think his anxiety level was high? It absolutely was. Somebody could come behind me and knock me off and take all I have too. What if I fall into the same fate by helping this man? Or when he was putting his money down on the table at a place he didn't know for a man he had just met. He was giving his money and his time and his, and, and his energy to help this guy. The second thing it could cost you, it could cost you your reputation. Who prides himself in having a good reputation? We all do. John 15, 18 says that the world hates you. Keep in mind that it hated me first. It hated Jesus. It will hate you also if you try to follow him. But to follow Jesus faithfully, we have to repeatedly die to our desires for people's approval. Repeatedly. This Samaritan was helping a Jew. This Samaritan was helping someone he was supposed to hate. Think about this for a second. What if another Samaritan or his parents or his friends passed by and saw this happening? Think about back in 2001. What if somebody would have said, hey, you know, there's an Af- Afghani family downtown that needs your help. Well, they just bombed our country. I'm not helping them. That's anti-gospel is what that is. We're called to help people. Luke 6, 22 to 23, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I love that, guys. That's the heart as we're looking at this. So as we're looking today, think it could cost you your life. The third thing, it could cost you your life. The question is, if being a servant of God cost you everything, would you still serve him? If being a servant of Jesus cost you everything in your life, would you still serve Jesus? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to you? Really ask yourself that question and then look at your life and determine if that's how you've structured your life. Because let me tell you this, if if you don't serve him where you are, you're not going to serve him where you want to be. You hear that? If you don't serve him where you're at, where he's placed, you're not going to serve him where you want to be. And as you look at this, guys, understand, there's no cost that you can pay in following Jesus that won't be made up a thousandfold in the resurrection. Do you hear that? Your mind cannot fathom the beauty of seeing Christ in his glory. Every sacrifice that you've ever made will be made up for it a thousandfold. The second thing we see in this story 
as being a faithful servant, it paints a picture of the gospel like nothing else can. Do you hear that? Being a faithful servant paints a picture of the gospel like nothing else can. And the world needs that from the church right now, right? The church has given Jesus and, the, and his, our faith a bad name sometimes because we, we go after our needs and our wants and our agendas get in the way. The world needs the church right now to paint a picture of gospel-centered servitude. And this is where Jesus turns the religious leader's question on his head. I love this part. As we look at this, you remember the question started with this lawyer asking, what could be done to inherit the kingdom of God? What could be done to have eternal life? As I look at this, I'm like, I'm reminded this lawyer is trying to, to save himself. But if you know anything about the life and the teachings of Jesus, you know the whole point of his coming was that he, we couldn't save ourselves, so he had to come and save us, which is why Jesus puts an interesting twist on this story. He's trying to show this lawyer, this expert, why he came. Jesus shouldn't have to do that, right? He had the law. He knows these things. And as I was reading this and looking at this, looking at some commentary, I was noticing the interesting fact that God, that Jesus used a Samaritan. Why did Jesus use a Samaritan in this picture? Why not tell the story in a way where the lawyer could identify with the person who helped? Why not tell the story of the priest came by, the Levite came by, and then this really, really God-fearing, God-loving Jew came by and helped the guy? Why not use that? Jesus used a character that com was completely opposite from the guy asking questions and said, here's why. Let me ask you this. What if the person we're most supposed to identify with in this story is not the priest or the Levite or the Good Samaritan? What if in this story we're the guy bleeding on the side of the road? What if in this story, we're the guy that's needing assistance? What if someone who had every reason to be our enemy had chosen to put himself in danger to help us? What if the Good Samaritan is actually Jesus in this story? As I was reading this, I'm like, man, who put himself in danger for us to took upon himself the sufferings we had caused ourselves and poured out his resources to save us? Maybe y'all got that the first time y'all read the story, but I was like, man, this is an interesting twist. Jesus is asking this man, this lawyer, what if you were bleeding on to death on the road? What if you're dying on the road? And your only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy who didn't owe you anything. After you had been rescued like that, what would you do with your life? What would your life look like? Guys, when we understand the gospel, the great lengths that Jesus went to to serve us through the gospel, we go to great lengths to serve others the same way. And the only thing I can suggest is why people in the church don't serve people like Jesus served them is they may not know Jesus. And that's, that's, that's dangerous and that's scary. And I'm just praying that you would hear that with love and compassion and grace, that, that there are people that are in the church that don't know the Lord, but they claim to. My heart would be today that we would evaluate ourselves and say, hey, am I living in Christ? Because there's a lot of people that come in the church that aren't in Christ. And we need to evaluate our hearts today to make sure that we're in Christ. First Corinthians tells us to do that. We go to great lengths to serve others in the same way. Guys, we serve our church. We serve our homes, our neighbors. We go to the nations without someone going and serving. Guess what? People, groups that never heard of Christ, how are they ever here? We're called to go serve those people with the gospel, the compassion, the compassion. It says the, great, the, great, the, the good Samaritan had compassion for this man. And it's the same compassion that Jesus felt. Look at, look at Matthew 9, 36. It'll be on the screen. 
It says, when he saw the crowds, this is Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he felt what? Compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And as I read that, the word that Jesus used for the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan, excuse me, is, is one that, this, that Jesus felt. And it's a, it's a Greek word that literally means to have pity from the deepest part of your soul. Have you ever felt pity at the deepest part of your soul from somebody to the point where you could not do anything but help or but be there or but stand in the gap or but love someone who's unlovable or has hurt you or done you wrong? God isn't after rule followers in the church. He's not after box checkers. He's not after someone who will do the things the way that they think they should be done. He wants people to love like he loves, who responds like he responds. And that can't be produced by the law. It can only be produced by a radical experience with God's grace. That's the only way. Paul tells us, he comes in and says, you know, well, Jesus starts the, the, you know, the golden rule. You've heard this. It says, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? We love that. We, parents love to tell our kids that, right? Well, Paul gives them another one. Paul gives, the, uh, he ups it. He says, do for others as Jesus has done for you. Do for others as Jesus has done for you. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God has also forgiven you in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.9, this is, he's talking about Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Guys, if that doesn't affect our lives in a way that pushes us into action, something's wrong and something's off. We may have strongholds in our heart, but what I think is incredible about Matthew 9, where it said Jesus had compassion on the masses, is that we just read, is that if, if you keep reading in verse 37 and 38, you'll see that Jesus is inviting the disciples that he's leading into the same ministry to serve. And what you see is, is not only that, he commanded them to pray for more workers to be sent, right? What I love is, is what you see in 37 and 38, and he says, then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. But the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. I pray every day that we would send people out of this church to the harvest. Our hearts, that we would start praying for unreached people groups and that your heart would be burdened for people, the 10,000 people a day that are dying going to hell without Christ because they don't have access to a gospel. You think that may be cruel of a God to do? I think it's cruel for us to have the gospel and not go. Right? Our heart is for us to give the nations what we have through the gospel, guys. These people do these things because at the center of their faith is a dying man on the cross who's dying for people who had just abused and mistreated him. And we're called to do the same. And unlike this lawyer, we don't love our neighbors because we have to do certain things to be saved, but because something great has been done for us. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. So yes, we serve on Sundays. Yes, at the front door, we serve in different places, but these are just on-ramps to serve your family, to your neighbors, and eventually to the world, so that, just like in Philippians 2, 11, so that God will be glorified. We all want God to be glorified in our lives, right? We, and every person in this room wants to glorify God with their life, but the question is, have you responded and put your life in motion to see it done? We're expecting God to open up the clouds and say, Go here, do this, be that, do that, spend this. But he does that through this. And he does that through time and prayer. And we're called to be obedient. And so as we get ready to close, the band can come back. We're going to do one more song. But my question for you is, I want to ask you, I want to get personal with you for a second. What does it look like for you? 
Have you been someone that has voluntarily made painful sacrifices for the weaknesses and the needs of others? Like answer that re- really in your heart. Have you, have you put yourself out there for God to use in that way? Is your heart to serve the church and serve your neighbor, no matter what it costs you? No matter what it costs you, your life, your reputation, your comfort, is your heart to serve? It, is your motivation for the gospel to be seen clearly through the way you live your life? Guys, a great biblical teaching is found in Leviticus 19. Yeah, there's some great teaching there. God tells us to love our neighbors in this place. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it also includes a very interesting application after that. It commands the Jews to leave the edges of their fields ungleaned, unpicked, right? Ungleaned. Don't pick the edges of your fields. Don't let, let, those, let that be for the poor. Let that be for the people who have needs. And as I started thinking about this, the application for that is for us is the margin in our lives, the, the money, the time that we have. Is there a margin in your time? Is there a margin in your treasures? Is there a margin in your talent to be used for other people to be served and loved on? Do you have time? Do, this, is a, this is a serious question. Guys, do you have time to engage in what God is doing in his church, in the world? Do you have time to do that? Like, there's so many people, if you ask people, what's, how's their day been or how's their week been? I've been busy. I've been busy. Well, let me tell you, that, that might be sinful in some people's lives. And we need to call each other out of that, to quit some things, to stop doing some things. Some of us, there's two things that I kind of want to leave you with. Some of us need to audit our life. Audit your life. Audit your time. What are you doing with your time? Maybe sit down at your dinner table and write out your schedule for the week and say, I can cut this out, I can cut this out, I can cut this out so that I can be missional maybe with my neighbor, so that I can maybe disciple someone. When I said I don't have time to make disciples, guess what? I do have time. I just fill it with Netflix. Right? Maybe I can cut that out and save 20 bucks a month, right? It's worth it. A lot of people who say they don't have time to make disciples, it's not a time thing, it's an obedience thing. Listen, some of us may, we might be this priest or this Levite who might be in a hurry and unable to engage in the gospel because it's inconvenient or dangerous or it costs money. You see, you'll never live the life God intends you to live unless you intend to. And intending to start with an honest assessment at how you arrange your life. The second thing is learning to say no. We live in a yes man culture because we want people to like us, right? If you say that's untrue, it's probably not. It is, it's true, right? We want people to like us. Learn to say no to certain things. Many of us are too busy to live on mission. That's dangerous ground for a Christian, guys. And the greatest action for creating margin for your life, in, in, for, for mission in your life, is to say no to some things. Learning to say no to certain things so that we can say yes to the better things. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Do you hear that? Learn that today. I, I know there's families that come to this church. They come every six weeks and they call it their home. I'm stepping on toes. It's okay. It's what I'm called to do. But they aren't here the other five weeks because it's vacation, vacation, dance recitals, beach trips, Disney World, all these things that have take precedent over the mission of God and meeting with the body of Christ. Because, and their motivations are good, because they don't want their children to be deprived of the essential childhood memories and experiences. But then, what if your kids grows up and walks out of the faith? They'll ask, what did we do wrong? We took him to church. 
It's because they taught them that the wrong things in their lives were important. They so filled their lives with these marginal things that they eliminated any space for the essentials. People with children, I don't care how old they are, we need to teach our children how to be servants of the living God before we teach them anything else. We need to show them how we manage our schedules and our time and our things to show them who we are in Christ. And finally, some of us, we still have this mindset of the lawyer this morning. We still think we have to do something to be saved. And there's, let me tell you, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. This is why Jesus had to come. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for you and me. Guys, keeping a bunch of commands or laws or keeping a checkbook of do's and don'ts will never and could never save you. You're saved only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And once you experience this, you want to give your time, treasure, and talent to him for the mission. You want to be with the people of God. You want to give away the things that you have that you may have been worshiping so that God's name can be pushed out into the world. Guys, I want to tell you this. Take this to the bank. Take this to the bank. Test me on this. Test the word on this. Test God on this. If you'll offer him your life, he'll use it. This morning, believe that and put that into action. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at. I'm not sure if you've struggled with this. I'm not sure if you've kind of set your life up to to please you and only you and benefit you and only you. I'm not sure if you've struggled with being a true servant. I'm not sure if you've struggled with this because you may not know Jesus. I'm not sure if you you know the church and you know religion, but you may not know the, the, the center of our faith, Jesus. And so this morning, if you have never known that, if you've never understood that we're not called to do the things, we're called to be with him and and to be in Christ. And as we're in Christ, he works himself out of us in our hands to this world. If you've never understood that God made Jesus to become sin on our behalf because our sin makes us guilty before a sovereign God. And this morning, I want to give you some good news that you don't have to live in that fear anymore because of what Jesus has done on the cross because he came out of the grave because him doing that, he died for our sins and then he rose from the grave to defeat sin and death and shame. So you don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live in fear of death anymore. You don't have to live under your sin's power anymore because you've been set free by the blood of the Lamb. This morning, if you don't know Christ, that's not true about you. The way that you can know, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. Does your life say, I'm a Christian? Does your life say, does the way that you spend your time, your talent, your money, all the things that you have, does it say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm using my life to follow him? If it doesn't, maybe this morning is the time that you say, hey, Michael, it's time for me to get saved. I've been playing games for a long time. That's you this morning. I just want to ask you to do something bold. I want to ask you to say, hey, that's me this morning. Is there anybody this morning that just says, hey, this morning is a day of salvation for me? I need to be saved. Great. That's not you. That means we may have some praying to do. As a band leads us in a last song, maybe come up here to this altar. Let's just pray, God, forgive me for going after the things that I want and not the things that you want. God, forgive me for spending my time and my treasure and my talent on things that benefit me and only me. 
This morning, I pray as we close it, we would be a church that is sacrificial with our time, sacrificial with everything that God's given us so that we can see him become famous around the world. And so let me pray for you. And as I pray, you come and just do some business with the Lord as we sing this last song. So let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us like you have. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for giving us a way to back to you. I pray this morning for the person that's far from you, God, that is just struggling, understanding the gospel, or struggling, understanding just some of the struggles they're dealing with. Father, I pray that you would just breathe fresh life into them. Father, I pray that you would convict their hearts, that you would just draw them in by your love, God, because we know that you're a God of love. Lord, you're tender with us and you're gentle with us. Father, I pray for the Christian in this room, God, that is that is that has fallen away, that has just kind of gone their own way and they may have been hurt or they may have just had some struggles that kind of threw them off the rails. I pray that you would draw them back, Father. God, I pray for the marriage in this room, God, that's struggling or just is, there's a lot of tension. I pray that you would just heal that in Jesus' name. God, I pray for the worries, the anxieties of our day, God, the things that people face in this room, God, that you would just meet every need according to your son, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. May your name be glorified in Jesus' name.